Well, welcome to our Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. My name is Tom Gilligan, and I'm the director of the Hoover Institution. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution's distinguished fellows and world-renowned library and archives have been collecting knowledge and generating ideas that support the pursuit of freedom and improving the human condition. The dissemination of our work has had a direct and significant impact on the creation and execution of important public policy initiatives in the United States and around the world. As we face a worldwide pandemic, innovative ideas that lead to actionable strategies are more important than ever. During this series, you will hear from our top scholars. They will provide you with thoughtful and informed analysis, as well as policy responses to mitigate the potential effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. As a reminder, we'll be, we will be taking audience questions today and encourage you to submit yours at the bottom, located at the, uh, your questions and answers, which are located at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from Neil Ferguson, who is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and a senior fellow at Harvard's Center for European Studies. He is also a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Neil is the author of 15 books, including his most recent, The Square in the Tower, which was a New York Times bestseller. He is an award-winning filmmaker, having won an international Emmy for his PBS series, The Ascent of Money. And you may have recently seen his three-part series uh, entitled Networld, which was premiered on PBS earlier this month. Neil, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you, Tom, and with the, uh, and with the audience. Great. Uh, you're a world-class historian. Will you tell us a bit about uh, what history tells us about past pandemics? And put this current pandemic in that context, if you will. Sure, uh, Tom, with pleasure. One of the uh, preoccupations of my career, dating back all the way to the 1990s, has been with uh, networks and contagion and contagion takes many different forms the most dramatic is when a pathogen uh, spreads uh, through our our species and kills a large number of us and this has happened uh, on a number of occasions on a massive scale so whenever uh, some new pathogen uh, comes along uh, you do need to consider the possibility that this is going to be one of those uh, very rare but very devastating pandemics that we've seen in the past. The most famous that everybody's heard of, even if they've never studied it at school, is the Black Death of the mid-14th century, which swept across Eurasia uh, in the 1340s, uh, causing absolute devastation uh, with huge proportions of the population dying uh, of the bubonic plague and pneumonic plague, which uh, went with it. But much more recently than that, the world was swept by a mutant influenza virus uh, that was in 1918-19 at the tail end of World War I. And that pandemic, which uh, went pretty much global, not least thanks to large-scale troop movements, killed more people than the war itself. Uh, so in January, when I started to hear about a strange new virus in Wuhan, uh, I paid attention because as an historian, uh, little red lights were flashing in my head. Uh, I've always been somebody who's uh, worried that we've made ourselves in some ways more vulnerable to a new pathogen by becoming so interconnected. Uh, that, that's something that's a central theme of my most recent book, The Square and the Tower, which you kindly mentioned in your introduction. 
Uh, and it's part of the, the theme of the recent PBS series that just uh, went out earlier this month, NetWorld. We are more connected as a species than we were in the 1340s. We're a lot more connected than we were in 1918-19. And that means that any new virus has a fantastic chance to go global really quickly. And, uh, and that's what started to happen in January, and it may even have begun uh, in December. Uh, so I think the lesson of history is be very afraid if something like this uh, crops up in 2020, because uh, whatever its properties, and you won't know immediately all the properties of the virus, uh, if it's contagious, uh, it will be very quickly in every country in the world and in every state of the United States. And that's that's exactly what's happened. Uh, the good news, and I don't want to petrify the audience too much, uh, is that this isn't going to be the Black Death or the 1918-19 influenza pandemic in terms of its uh, death toll. I'm, I'm fairly sure it won't be that bad. Uh, and, and there are a couple of reasons why I think it's different this time. Uh, the first is that if you uh, just bear in mind the advances that medical science has made, we are better placed, uh, really much better placed even than uh, our grandfathers and great-grandfathers in 1918-19 to figure out uh, the, uh, the nature of the virus and to figure out a vaccine and to figure out uh, a, a therapy. We, we will be able to do that uh, in a startlingly short space of time and by next year, uh, perhaps uh, at worst 18 months from now, there will be, I'm sure, a vaccine available against COVID-19. And, uh, and so it won't be uh, as, as something that, that, that becomes uh, disastrously endemic. I think it becomes endemic, but manageably endemic in future years. The second thing which is really important to emphasize is that as far as we can make out at this point, uh, although it's highly contagious, uh, this virus, SARS-CoV-2, isn't as lethal as its relatively close relative SARS uh, or indeed MERS. Other coronaviruses have been much, much more lethal, uh, mm -hmm. killing much larger proportions of people uh, who get it. Whereas what's striking about this new virus is its contagiousness is a function of its being carried by many people who get it but have no symptoms. Uh, and this proportion of people who are asymptomatic uh, is one of the most fascinating numbers which we're trying to work out. There are re there's reason to believe that up to 80% of people in, in uh, Hubei province uh, had the virus but were asymptomatic. I suspect that's probably a slightly larger proportion than it'll turn out to be worldwide, but certainly some substantial proportion uh, of people who get uh, COVID-19 don't have any symptoms and are fine. And that, that makes it very contagious, but it also makes it a lot less lethal than some other pathogens that we've had to reckon with in, in the recent and in the distant past. Yeah. The experience with the virus has varied across countries quite dramatically. What do you make of the various policy responses you're seeing around the world? Which ones are effective? Which ones are least effective? Well, we can begin to make a judgment about that, Tom, uh, because uh, we, we have a sort of lead table that I was just looking at earlier uh, based on uh, the, the success of response of various countries. Uh, up at the top are, are small countries who have every reason to defend themselves uh, tenaciously, Israel and Taiwan. Uh, you'd also put in the, in the top of the league table uh, South Korea. And, uh, and Singapore too. And, and the, the, the key here, I think, is uh, that countries uh, who have uh, traditionally 
faced many external threats, uh, tend to have rapid response systems, uh, which are exactly what you need in the face of a new virus. Particularly those countries that went through the experience of SARS and, and, and MERS more recently, uh, they learned that a new virus requires very rapid action so that you can identify people who have it and then use technology to contact trace the people that they've been in touch with. Uh, and so what happened, just to give one example in South Korea, was that although there was an outbreak there, with amazing speed they worked out uh, who had it and who they'd been in contact with. They were able even to identify patient 31, uh, who was one of the super spreaders, uh, a woman who contracted COVID-19, uh, and then uh, managed to spread it to more than a thousand people in just a matter of a few days. These super spreaders are part of a wider story that I, I've tried to tell in, in my more recent work. It, it's all about the social network. Half the battle here is understanding the virus and its properties, and we're, we're struggling to do that. And half the battle is to understand the social networks that the virus attacks. And that has as big an, uh, uh, an impact on the ultimate death toll as the properties of the virus itself. Uh, let me illustrate the point. Italy has had a really torrid time. Uh, it's had the most serious uh, experience of any European country. It has one of the highest case fatality rates, that is the proportion of people confirmed as having the disease who die, it's something like 10% mm -hmm. uh, in Italy. And, uh, and you might say, as I've heard some people say, oh, well, that's because the Italians are terribly incompetent and they don't know how to run hospitals. But that, that's actually very unfair. Uh, that is not a, at all a fair judgment. It's much more plausible, I think, that, that Italy's distinctive social networks, the relatively densely populated cities of northern Italy, the patterns of intergenerational cohabitation, which mean that grandparents see a lot more of their kids than probably American grandparents typically do. All of this explains why, uh, uh, why Italy was so hard hit. But I think you have to kind of take a step back and say there are two kinds of country. There were those that had a system in place to take uh, immediate action at the first sign of trouble and those that really dithered. And I put the United States in the camp of those who dithered along with the United Kingdom and a number of other countries who, who really could have acted much earlier and therefore have uh, contained the, the virus in the way that South Korea did. Yeah, thank you. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Tom Gilligan and this is the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with Neil Ferguson. Let's turn to the United States now and, and we'll probably get more questions about the dithering, but where are we currently and what do we need to do going forward to address the threat of the virus? Well, it depends where you are, Tom. I and mean, if you're dialing in from New York, you're uh, in the uh, eye of the storm. Uh, the New York state is one of those states with the largest number of confirmed cases where the hospitals are, are under the greatest strain. And uh, it doesn't look like it's going to let up uh, in the next couple of weeks. In fact, uh, some projections I've seen anticipate that the, the, uh, the pandemic in New York state will peak in about two weeks time. Similar story next door in New Jersey. Uh, and there are a number of other states about which I think we should be concerned uh, right now, including, for example, Florida. Uh, I, I think if, you, if you're sitting as I am in Montana, uh, uh, you're having a very different experience because Montana, in common with uh, many other heartland states, still has relatively few cases and uh, and, and no obvious strain in its uh, in its hospitals. But it's early days, and one of the things that I want to emphasize emphasize on this call is that compared with Europe, we we've done quite a bit less lockdown uh, 
uh, and quite a bit less social distancing in the country as a whole. Uh, let, let me try and explain why I think this. I think in places where people were paying attention, uh, uh, at, for example, in, in California and New York, uh, there, there was quite early social distancing. Uh, I think in the heartland states, the, there was, and in some cases still is, relatively much less. And you can tell this with a bunch of measures like foot traffic, uh, which we can infer from, uh, from smartphone data. It's, it's not down dr dramatically in some cities in the way that it is in most European cities. Uh, there's still a lot of uh, domestic air travel going on. People are still flying around and uh, the measures in place to to quarantine somebody coming from new york state to another state are, are pretty flimsy at this point so we've done quite a bit less uh social distancing and quite a bit less uh locking down uh than than say europe and that means that this thing has quite a bit further to run in the us i think we can expect to see exponential growth in cases in a whole bunch of states uh, in the coming weeks and it may not peak in say Florida until until May, according to some projections that I was looking at uh, yesterday. So I, I think we're in a very uh, uh, uncertain time. Uh, we, we don't really yet have a good handle on how many Americans have uh, the virus because we haven't done enough testing. And I think this has been one of our sig signal failures. The United States has grossly underperformed in testing compared with its peers. We still are behind South Korea on a per capita basis. And until we've really caught up on testing, we don't really know how many people have the virus and are fine. We don't know how many people are asymptomatic, but carrying and therefore shedding the virus. So we're in this haze of uncertainty. We don't know uh, just how bad the case fatality rate will get. Will New York be as bad as Italy or not quite as bad? Will parts of the country be like Germany, which has had a really low case fatality rate? We don't know. And until we have a little more of a grasp uh, on the, the scale of the problem, the, the extent of infection and the likely overload of hospitals, I don't think anybody can say with any conviction how many people will die in 2020 in the United States who would otherwise have lived because of COVID-19. The truth is nobody knows the answer to that question yet. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about kind of the cultural and political uh, impediments to taking the kind of steps necessary to combat the virus. Is the U.S. capable of practicing the same kind of social uh, tracing, the same kind of uh, restrictions on travel like quarantine and reduction of air travel that other countries did? Or do you think there's something that just keeps us from taking those kind of steps? Well, I, I sometimes hear a, a rather wrong-headed argument, which is, well, we can't do those things because then we'd be like China. Uh, an authoritarian, uh, undemocratic uh, regime. But, but I think that's a misunderstanding. China failed in this uh, more than anybody. The Chinese uh, systemic failure in December and January was the principal cause of this catastrophe. Uh, and we should not make the mistake of believing that somehow China has done uh, an exemplary job uh, just because they contained uh, a disaster in their own country that they, they started themselves. Uh, I'd rather look at Taiwan uh, and South Korea and say, look, there are democracies that were able to contain this virus uh, without substantial violations of, uh, of, of civil liberties, mm -hmm. and indeed with less disruption to their economies than we are currently experiencing. Mm -hmm. uh, and we should learn from uh, Taiwan. I was in Taiwan right at the beginning of the year, uh, witnessed their most recent election. Uh, 
it's a shining example of, of a successful uh, East Asian democracy. And it turns out they're also pretty good at this kind of thing too. And one reason they're good is that they've taken advantage of the, the power of technology. It is thanks to uh, our, uh, our data that we generate so profusely every day through our devices that we can be traced uh, if we've been in contact with a carrier. Uh, the, the South Koreans and the Taiwanese have, have shown that you can do that without compromising uh, uh, individual privacy and rights. Uh, we have all that data in the United States. It just happens to be in the possession of companies like Facebook, Google, and Apple. Uh, at this point, I don't see that data being put to public use in the way that it could be. And I don't think the argument, oh, it would violate our, our privacy is valid. Our, our privacy has already been violated. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg knows uh, all he needs to know about our social networks. The issue is, can we put the data, which are now, I think, a public good, to use in the way that has happened in East Asia. And, and we're moving far too slowly in this direction. I just read a paper today that makes it clear that contact tracing, when you have a pandemic on this scale, can only be done with technology. You can't possibly do it the old way uh, with, with manual tracing. Uh, and so we're, we're sitting with all the technological capability that the United States has at its disposal, conducting this uh, public health emergency as if we're, I don't know, Brazil. It's really shocking and, uh, and a sign of, uh, of a very wide failure that needs to be investigated when it comes time to do an inquiry into what went wrong. Yeah. You're listening to Neil Ferguson, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. You can find more research on our website, hoover.org. Neil, I'd like to, like to turn to some audience questions now. Uh, David asks, as we recover from the situation, what do you think will stay the same and what will change, both from an economic and political perspective? And I guess what he's really asking is, what I'd like to do is, is kind of focus that through the lens of history, what do we know about the longer term consequences of pandemics? We know quite a bit. Uh, they have comparable uh, effects to large wars, but they're not quite the same. Uh, the Black Death, for example, uh, was a bonanza for the survivors. If you were a, uh, a European peasant uh, uh, and you survived uh, the 1340s, your, your standard of living went up quite a bit because there were real labor shortages. Uh, if you were a landowner, you, you found yourself on the wrong end of, uh, of economic history because rents declined steadily. Uh, from that point on for many decades. Uh, in the modern era, the, the effects of pandemics uh, have been uh, pretty uh, uh, negative. Uh, in, in the case of the big pandemic of 1918-19, uh, some recent research shows that that really had some very big effects uh, around the world. The biggest effects were in, in countries like India, where a huge number of people died uh, and in Brazil, which suffered very severely, uh, it, it's, it's clear from 1918-19 that the, the poorest countries uh, ultimately fared the worst in that, in that case because they simply didn't have any kind of capability uh, to manage the pandemic. The United States had a pretty torrid time in 1918-19, but bounced back relatively quickly. Uh, after all, we call it the Roaring Twenties, don't we? And uh, if you look back, uh, the, there's an interesting lesson to be drawn there. During 1918-19, uh, the United States responded rather as it is responding today in a kind of patchwork with some states and some municipalities imposing much tougher social distancing rules than others. And, uh, and so you got very different outcomes in, uh, for example, uh, Pittsburgh, which really was quite relaxed and didn't ban 
uh, big uh, crowded events and therefore had high mortality as compared with St. Louis uh, in Missouri, which actually uh, did a lot of social distancing, a lot of, of shutdown and uh, had a much lower death toll. And the research shows that those states and cities that, that did the most to contain the pandemic in 1918-19 did best economically in the subsequent decade. So there are quite lasting effects. If you, if you get this wrong and suffer a big death toll, um, and also, I think, inflict a lot of psychological damage on the survivors, there's a legacy. I think Italy will, will struggle to get over this because it really has been uh, a shock to the system, not just uh, to the healthcare system, but to the whole country and its, uh, its psyche. Germany will not. Uh, it, it's clear that the German uh, case fatality rate, one of the lowest in Europe, uh, is going to leave a relatively small scar on the German psyche compared with some of the disasters of the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to vary quite a bit from place to place, uh, even within the United States, how long a lasting effect it has. I'll, I'll add one more thing. Mm -hmm. I think as, as long as we're in the dark about how contagious this is without there being symptoms, in other words, what proportion of people get the virus, have no symptoms, barely notice, until we know a bit more about that, I think we're going to be fearful out of uncertainty. It might turn out that young people really don't have much to fear from COVID-19. Uh, it might turn out that the cases that we hear of, of young people uh, dying are really very exceptional. <coughs> and if that's so, then the behavioral changes might be very generationally specific. Uh, getting back to normal might be quite easy for my 20 year old uh, uh, children um, uh, but harder for me and very hard for my mother who's 82. We, we may all have to change our behavior but my sense is that it will be older people who will have to change their behavior more and this goes beyond just not shaking hands anymore. You won't get me to shake your hand in the future I'm afraid, sorry. Um, and as for hugs, forget it. But there's a bigger question, are we going to fly less, attend fewer conferences, do more things like this? I spend half my life on Zoom at the moment and uh, I could get used to that because it sure saves jet lag and, uh, and all those hassles at airport security. I think there may be some lasting behavioral changes. I'll add one last point. Sorry, long answer. I think the yeah. economic after effects are going to be bigger than the, uh, the after effects of the pandemic itself. I think we are going to lose a lot of businesses in all of this. A lot of restaurants are never coming back. Uh, and so there's going to be a kind of economic uh, legacy that will linger on certainly into next year. Yeah, uh, I want to stick with this question, uh, and this this kind of is a corollary, corollary that comes from Chris. Uh, globalization and distributed supply chains are a hallmark of our networked world. Are there any lasting implications for that model having to that will flow from the pandemic? Are we going to get more regionalized well, that, and nationalized and less globalized? We were already moving in that direction, weren't we? Not not just because of trade wars, but actually because. Um, changes in, um, in relative labor costs and advances in technology uh, were allowing us to, to onshore, to bring back uh, quite a bit of production. Um, and, and I think on top of that now, uh, there's a national security argument which has become much stronger for reducing our dependence on China for particularly pharmaceuticals, but, but really more broadly. Uh, I think what's fascinating about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is that it exacerbated what was already a bad US-China relationship. I wrote about a year ago <coughs> that we were in Cold War II 
that what I'd called Chimerica in 2007, that strange economic symbiosis between the US and China was over, and we were in the beginning of a new Cold War. Well, if the pandemic's done anything uh, in US-China relations, it's been to make them worse. There might be some cooperation going on between scientists working on the pandemic, but that's about it. The governments are, are barely on speaking terms. And some of what the Chinese have said in their propaganda, claiming that the disease originated in the United States is just crazy stuff, right out of the Soviet playbook of the Cold War. I, I think the conclusions that we're going to draw from this, uh, we're already taking shape. The, the dependence of supply chains on China has to be reduced. And I think we will have to reduce them, particularly in the uh, area of pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Um, I have a question from someone. I lost it here. Hold on, Neil. Let me just say the, the nature of the question was the following. We, we, the government uh, has taken extraordinary steps to try to rehabilitate or preserve the economy through this shutdown. You have the $2 trillion CARES bill. You have the Fed who appears to be willing to increase its balance sheet as large as it, as large as it needs to. Uh, are there any knock-on effects from that uh, with respect to inflation, with respect to the way governments and the private sector enacts in the future? What are your thoughts on the economic consequences of the pandemic? It's a classic, isn't it, to be discussing uh, COVID-19 and to develop a dry cough as you're doing it. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only person on this uh, call who's had at least one attack of, uh, of hypochondria in the last few months. Uh, so forgive me if I, I sound a bit hoarse. I think the hardest question uh, in economics at the moment is what, what will be the medium term effects of this crisis, uh, particularly with respect to inflation versus deflation. Short run, it's clearly a massively deflationary shock. We are giving ourselves a bigger uh, uh, supply side shock, but also demand side shock than in 2008, 2009. And uh, the effect in the short run is bound to be deflationary. It's hard to see how you could really have an inflationary uh, uh, at, at atmosphere at a time when you're it's kind of rerunning 1929 to 32, but speeded up by a factor of 10. But if you look further ahead, I think there are some questions that are worth asking. And I read a nice Deutsche Bank paper about this just the other day. In the end, a pandemic is a relatively confined in time event. It's not something that runs and runs and runs uh, in the way that the financial crisis ran and ran. Uh, remember, the financial crisis was really about bank capital adequacy. And we still didn't really know if the European banks were adequately capitalized in 2012, 2013. Uh, long after the crisis had begun in the US. Well, this pandemic will not be going on for years. It will be contained uh, in terms either of herd immunity or of the uh, advent of, of vaccination and, uh, and therapies uh, in around 12 to 18 months' time. Uh, and I think the, the, the main uh, shock, even if there is more than one wave, will largely be confined to this year, 2020. It may even be that the, the pandemic will surprise to the downside in the United States for reasons I touched on earlier. We might actually find that we don't have massive excess mortality amongst elderly Americans in 2020. It might just be that the people who, who are uh, carried off by COVID-19 would have been carried off by influenza or something else uh, if there had not been COVID-19. And so we've done an enormous bazooka shot economically both in monetary and fiscal terms in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the deficit was already large. 
a trillion dollars was already going to be the deficit this year, near 5% of GDP. It's going to be like 15% the way that Congress is going. And the Fed has done a bigger increase in its balance sheet size than it did in all the QEs of the Bernanke-Yellen era. Uh, if this turns out not to be uh, the Black Death uh, or 1918-19, if it turns out to be what President Trump said early on, he thought it would be nothing bigger than a regular flu season, a comment he was much criticized for, but could yet be right. We just don't know. If that's the case, then then the bazooka will have been fired at a rather smaller target than warranted a bazooka. And as you know, uh, Tom, from your military experience, you can't unfire a bazooka very easily. The shell doesn't go back inside it once you've fired it. I think the challenge for policymakers could be in the second half of this year, uh, how to wind all this down if it turns out that we've actually engaged in overkill. Uh, so I think this is a, a fascinating challenge. Short run, for sure, it's deeply deflationary. But you look ahead a year and you ask yourself, um, if we have a very rapid V-shaped recovery, and this turns out to have been uh, rather less of a cataclysm than we were led to expect, then what? I mean, are we going to simply cancel a lot of this relief? Uh, yeah. Can Congress unwind it? What about the Fed? Uh, we learned uh, in the financial crisis that actually ending QE is a lot harder than beginning it. Uh, what kind of a taper tantrum are we going to have to deal with in 2021? Uh, so I, th I think we're in a very, very challenging environment. Uh, rather, as after 2008, I said we, we were engaging in the fiscal and monetary policy of a war without the war. I think that's what's happening now. We're, we're kind of running a fiscal and monetary policy, which if all you saw were the numbers, you'd think we were at war. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not at war, except we're at war with a virus. And we don't yet know how long this virus, uh, war against the virus will last, but it definitely won't be more than about a year. Yeah. David asked a fascinating question about knock-on or second wave effects of the virus. He asked, are there historical examples of a virus being recycled? That is, like we are seeing a reemergence re of the virus in Asia. Related, are there ones that mutate and reinfect a population? Well, this is a question that's a little bit above uh, my pay grade, uh, but I'll, I'll have a go based on conversations I've had with people who are at the right pay grade, i.e. qualified medical scientists. Uh, a coronavirus uh, is not capable of mutating that much. Uh, this is not, for example, like HIV, which actually mutates uh, quite significantly. There are some strains, as you probably know if you've been reading about this, of, of COVID-19, of SARS-CoV-2, I should say, but it's, it's actually, there's not that much variation uh, because of the way this uh, RNA-based virus uh, replicates. It doesn't actually uh, accidentally mutate through, through defective copying. So I think that the first uh, point to make is there's not going to be a terrific mutation. Uh, the second point to make uh, is that any mutations likely to make it less, not more lethal on the basis of uh, uh, the uh, experience of other similar viruses. Uh, and the third point is this whole question of uh, resistance after infection. Now, this is a really controversial issue because we, we're still kind of in the dark. Um, reports coming out of China suggested that people could get uh, COVID-19, appear to be clear, and then get it again. Most people I talked to who are really qualified in this area say that's unlikely, and this was probably just faulty testing. Uh, more likely, there is some kind of resistance 
once you've had uh, the virus. The question is how long it lasts. And that's, that, that's something nobody knows because uh, we won't know for perhaps a year. We won't know whether resistance is something that stays with you for a long time or just uh, for less than a year. We won't know if we're going to be getting COVID-19 on a regular basis. Uh, but I think once we have a vaccine against it, that vaccine should be pretty effective because it isn't really going to change too much uh, with every passing year. Yeah. Here's an interesting question from Nicholas. Um, Neil, and I know you've thought a lot about this, and this is a, about the flow of information in the networked economy. He has the following. How has the flow of information and misinformation affected pandemics and countries' responses to them? Are there any notable differences between how information spreads on Facebook about COVID-19 versus how information spread about the bubonic plague? Well, yes, they didn't have Facebook in the 1340s, <laughs> obviously. Um, but as I pointed out in the Square and the Tower, you don't need technology to have social networks. Uh, in fact, things can go viral in the sense that we often use with respect to the internet. Even without the printing press, it's remarkable if you think back uh, a long way in history how the great monotheistic religions of Christianity and Islam spread. It wasn't like there were large literate populations with the internet or even printed matter, and yet these ideas spread. So we know that ideas can spread as, as readily as, as viruses. Uh, you can think of biological viruses, ideological viruses, and digital viruses all having very similar behaviors, and they they basically enter a social network and they will go uh, right through that network at, at varying speeds, depending on the properties of the virus and the structure of the network. That's a general truth, I think, about the human species that goes right back to our very earliest, uh, earliest times. Today, we have, as I think I said at the beginning, the, the biggest, fastest global network there's ever been. It's very much faster than the global network of the 1340s that spread uh, the Black Death. And it's still a lot faster than the 1918-19 global network. After all, in 1918-19, troops had to cross the Atlantic in, in ships, uh, not in planes. And planes are crucial here. I mean, the reason that this thing went global was just the sheer number of flights out of China in the key month of January, uh, including direct flights to San Francisco and New York, not to mention Rome, Paris, and London. But equally, ideas can travel faster in our time and further than they ever did before. And as I tried to show in the square in the tower, unfortunately, because of the network architecture of network platforms like Facebook and Google, it is often sensational ideas, not necessarily true ones, that go viral fastest. So we've had a spate of, of misinformation uh, uh, and I think also some malicious disinformation about COVID-19 uh, uh, over the last few months. I'll give you just one example. An Australian website uh, published a photograph uh, of all the flights in the world. It was a sort of generic photograph of all flight paths, but it captioned it. This is, uh, this is a map of all the people who fled Wuhan before the lockdown was imposed. There was nothing of the kind. But it looked absolutely terrifying. It looked as if people from Wuhan had fled carrying the virus to pretty much every airport on the planet. And that erroneous or uh, downright fake news uh, spread very, very far before the BBC and others pointed out that it was actually fake news. Uh, there's a lot of this stuff around. And I, I spend a good deal of time combing through uh, social media as well as uh, respectable websites 
because out there, there are some pretty important bits of research being published. Uh, but you have to sift for the gold amongst a whole lot of dross. Um, and I, I've lost track of the number of patent remedies for COVID-19 I've, I've read about in the last few weeks. Uh, it seems as if, you know, everybody, uh, everybody out there has some uh, grand theory of, uh, of, a, of a cure for this disease. None of the scientific papers support the confident claims that are made in the, in the social media space about uh, anti-malarial uh, remedies. I mean, this, this is the kind of time when you need to read very carefully and make sure that, that what you're reading comes from a, an authoritative and genuinely expert source. Uh, and I get the impression from what I see that not many people are, are that discriminating about this. Mm. Here's a question from our colleague, George Osborne. Uh, George wants to know who will emerge as the winners from this crisis, the populists or the experts? Maybe tell us what that question is about, Neil, too. That's a great question. I mean, the battle between populists and experts has been going on for some time. And uh, in some ways, this is the moment of truth uh, for both sides. Uh, in, in a way, the pandemic is, is, is the biggest challenge that uh, the governments around the world have faced since the financial crisis. It's uh, bigger even than the great refugee crises that we've seen in, in recent years in Europe or, or in South America. And when you're faced with a really big crisis, um, the populist methods don't often work that well. Uh, taking decisions on the basis of your gut, I have a feeling this is no worse than the, than the, than the regular seasonal flu, uh, is, is a risky approach because what we know as experts about pandemics is that they have very fat-tailed distributions. You might be right. Maybe only 40,000 people will die because of COVID-19 in the United States this year, in which case those who said it was just the seasonal flu will say we were right. Um, but we know that it could equally well uh, be much a much higher number than that. And indeed, uh, one of the key uh, medical advisors uh, to the US government acknowledged that it could be in the hundreds of thousands We've even heard numbers as large as a million. An expert says, we don't know yet how many people are infected, and we don't know yet what the real mortality rate of uh, COVID-19 is, as opposed to the case fatality rate. The real mortality rate of all the people who get it. And as long as we don't know that, we can't really, uh, we can't really answer the question definitively. All we can say is that it's governed by a power law, a bit like earthquakes, we can't really say uh, how big it will be uh, because it could be an order of magnitude larger than 40,000. That's a correct expert response. The danger is uh, that the experts, perhaps because of their expertise, are tempted into overconfident statements. I don't think it helped that my namesake, Neil Ferguson at Imperial College, um, for whom I've repeatedly been mistaken in the last uh, few weeks, even though he spells his name N-E-I-L and not N-I-A-L-L, went from a scenario which implied a very large number of deaths in the US or the UK to one in which a very much smaller number uh, were likely to die. Now, he would say, well, we changed the policy from herd immunity to, uh, to uh, suppression, and therefore the outcome is going to be much better because my advice was heeded. But for most lay people, they just got the impression he'd done a U-turn uh, and, and tweaked a model, which in any case, he wasn't apparently prepared to publish. I don't think that does expertise a huge amount of good. I don't think that Neil Ferguson communicated very well 
what it was that his model was implying. Uh, so I, I think it's not really obvious yet who's going to get the, the, the upper hand here. I think the president and other world leaders, I could include uh, Jair Bolsonaro and even Boris Johnson in this, didn't honestly uh, acknowledge at the outset that we were in the domain of uncertainty and it could be very bad indeed, we just didn't know. But I think equally some experts uh, went from we don't know to it could be very bad to it will be very bad. And that's, that's a mistake that experts often make. You know, when you're on a television interview, as I think you know, George, there's always a, a pressure to sound certain. You want to sound confident and not hesitant. Nobody likes answers that say, well, it could be 4,000, it could be 40,000, or it could be 400,000. That's the honest answer, but it's not a great TV answer. So I think both, both the leaders, the populists, and the experts have made some missteps over the last couple of months. And the bottom line is, if the United States avoids being Italy, if it ends up with a death toll south of 100,000, if it turns out that excess mortality that's to say the number of people who die this year as compared with last year is not that great, then I think the populists will claim victory and they will accuse the experts of having been alarmist. Now, that is a quite plausible scenario, I think, at this point. Thanks. Neil, uh, Howard has, is interested in other thoughts that you might have on permanent shifts. If business models will be re-engineered to low-touch operations, what happens to lower-wage jobs? Uh, similarly, does this prove a one-time extension of the U.S. safety net or a permanent change in how government is viewed in the U.S.? Two good questions uh, to which I can only uh, offer hesitant answers. I think that the, uh, that the enduring changes um, are unlikely to be that great. For the vast majority of workers, the option to work from home does not exist. And so those of us who have the luxury of being able to do our jobs uh, in, in home offices, taking advantage of technology, may well do more of that. I certainly would love to think of a future in which I fly less and Zoom more. But that's just not an option for the great majority of, of people who are going to, I think, go back uh, to work as soon as they possibly can in the way that they did before. Uh, washing their hands more regularly, not shaking hands and so forth. I don't, I don't think, in other words, that there's going to be a terrific alteration uh, in our way of life. Uh, but you, your second question is a, a, a more challenging one. The, the argument that was made by a German economist uh, named Adolf Wagner back in the late 19th century was that there was an inexorable law of rising uh, state expenditure. Uh, Wagner observed that uh, as uh, countries became more advanced and cities became larger, the pressure to increase the provision of public goods grew politically. In his own Germany, the Social Democrats became the biggest party in the German parliament by 1912. And the trend was there in, in the United States as well with the progressive movement. I think it's arguable uh, that an opportunity has been established by this pandemic uh, for today's progressives to argue that the case for a broader uh, uh, and uh, uh, more universal system of, uh, of healthcare has been made by the pandemic. I think they will certainly make uh, that kind of argument. And others will say that universal basic income has been validated by the government sending checks to people. 
whose jobs have disappeared. And I've no doubt that there'll be economists saying that modern monetary theory has been validated by everything the Fed has done. I fully expect these arguments to be made. Will they actually stick politically, though? Well, here's a lesson from history. After uh, the 1918-19 flu pandemic, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was affected by the uh, influenza enough not to be able to run for re-election, had to step aside. Uh, It's one of the many interesting casualties of that particular pandemic. Uh, And uh, an election then happened uh, which was decisively won uh, by Warren Harding, the Republican candidate, on a return to normalcy uh, platform. That was one of his campaign slogans. And it uh, signified a major reverse for uh, progressive hopes. And various ideas that had been uh, current around about the end of World War I, which would have expanded the role of the the federal government and state governments uh, actually died at that point. Similarly, all around uh, Europe, the left-wing energies of the period after the Russian Revolution uh, of 1917, which looked like they were going to get an additional boost from the influenza pandemic, absolutely faded in most countries with remarkable speed. And conservatives, if not downright fascists, in the case of Italy, came to power in that early post-war era. So if the 1920s are any guide, Uh, I I don't think we should expect uh, the apparent progressive uh, gains of the last uh, month uh, to be turned into permanent institutional features. I think it's much more likely that Republicans will say these were emergency measures. uh, The emergency is over and therefore so are the measures. And I actually think if that argument is made, I will be inclined to support it. Interesting. Uh, Neil, lessons from history for uh, how leaders should act in pandemics. And given those lessons, how would you rate the handful of leaders who are central to this crisis right now? This is a a challenging question to answer. We've seen a wide variety of of leadership styles. Uh, I think the the leader who struck to me the classic tone uh, in an emergency was the French president, Emmanuel Macron, who leveled with the French public that something pretty bad uh, was coming and uh, invoked the the notion that, that this was a warlike situation that would require warlike national unity and sacrifice. I think that's how I would have advised anybody in that position to play it. I think those leaders who were inclined to play it down, including not only uh, President Trump, but uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and President Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who's still playing it down. Or for that matter, the Mexican President Lopez Obrador, who's really been in denial about it for the better part of two months. I think they did a disservice uh, because the right response in, in a crisis like this is, this is serious. It could be very bad. The earlier we act, the less economic pain we endure. By wasting time, uh, by postponing radical action, I think the the the, the leaders uh, I, I mentioned made a mistake, and even if it turns out not to be as bad as uh, our worst fears, they shouldn't legitimately claim victory because if it doesn't turn out too badly, it'll be because we finally got round to 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 testing and we finally got round to social distancing and we finally got round to travel restrictions. We've done all those things too late. 
I, I mean, I was writing about this in, in the uh, later part of January, trying to draw attention to the risk uh, that we faced. In Taiwan and in South Korea and in Singapore, governments uh, saw this was serious and acted early and reduced the cost to their citizens by, by doing so. I'm afraid we, we really wasted weeks uh, in a number of, of Western countries. And as a consequence, we've ended up with a much bigger economic shock and a much higher death toll than was necessary. If in the end only 40,000 or maybe 60,000 people die, uh, maybe if in the end uh, this isn't a, an especially severe year in terms of total mortality, the populist leaders will say, we were right all along. But that won't be the case, because in fact, the only reason that will be the outcome is that we finally did the right things, and we could have done those things much earlier. Uh, and I bitterly regret that, that, that we didn't. Uh, I'll tell you a little anecdote. I, I was in Washington uh, at, at a Hoover board meeting. You may remember, uh, Tom, uh, that meeting in February. And uh, it was at that time that President Trump was flying back from India, still downplaying the, the risk. And I had a number of conversations uh, with people in the administration uh, uh, during the course of that board meeting in which I tried to impress upon them. This is extremely serious. This could pose a really major threat to, to Americans and to the US economy. You have to take it more seriously. And I, I hope that I did something to, to nudge uh, the, the very slow-moving thing that is the federal government into a better direction. Uh, because that week, uh, the, there was finally a sort of serious statement from CDC about the scale of the potential problem. And, and the uh, vice president then was put uh, into a leading role that week, uh, shortly after he spoke to, to Hoover fellows and, uh, and board members. Uh, so, you know, there was a response, but it was, it was belated. And I think, uh, I think when we conduct a full inquiry into what went wrong uh, in the United States this year, uh, it'll reveal quite a serious systemic failure, not just on the part of the president. It's not all be this fault. I think CDC failed in a whole range of ways. Why has the testing been so incredibly slow? Why are we lagging behind so many countries on a per capita basis? Why was it that contradictory uh, arguments were, were made about about masks. There's a whole range of questions that need to be asked about the public health response in the United States. We, we can't just pin this all uh, on the president. There's been a more general failure. Mm -hmm. Great. Neil, we reached the end of the hour. I want to really thank you for your comments today. They've been very enlightening and informative. I'm sure the audience is, is really happy they attended. I want to remind everybody that our next virtual policy briefing will be Tuesday, excuse me, Thursday, April 2nd at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern entitled COVID-19, China and the Political Fallout with Michael Oslin and Lan He Chen. Michael Oslin is a distinguished research fellow at the Hoover Institution. He specializes in current and historical US policy in Asia and political and security issues in the Indo-Pacific region. Lan He Chen is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and director of domestic policy studies in the public policy program at Stanford University. In 2012, he was the policy director for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign and served as a senior appointee at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services during the George W. Bush administration. You can join Thursday's briefing at the same link you signed in on today. If you are interested in learning more about the work of our fellows on the coronavirus, please go to our website, hoover.org, where we have a section dedicated to COVID-19 research. Again, I want to thank you for attending today's briefing, and I want to wish you a safe and healthy rest of the week. Goodbye. <laughs>